Today on the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast. It's hard to tell what the, the next few months will bring. I can tell you this, if you're fundraising today, it's very difficult because it also is based on sitting down with people and pitching, and that uh, is usually more conducive in a face-to-face environment. Here is Michael Hainsworth. Following years of consistent investment growth across all stages in the ecosystem, Canadian venture capital investment reached impressive new heights in 2019 with a record $6.2 billion invested over 539 deals. 69% more than the $3.7 billion invested the year before. And then the pandemic hit. With the first half of 2020 in the rearview mirror, what does investment growth look like to the Canadian Venture Capital and Private Equity Association? CEO Kim Furlong joined us for her insight. I started by asking, what should we expect? It's a very timely question, Michael. We released our results for the first quarter, $831 million uh, for Q1, over 117 deals. Now, I will say that these numbers mark January to the end of March, and you would know like me that the, uh, the crisis that we're currently experiencing really began mid-March. So these numbers don't reflect at all COVID and actually are aligned um, pretty much with what we saw in Q1 last year. It's 7% lower uh, than the uh, 2019 Q1, uh, but also followed on the heels of a an amazing year, as you, as you just said, in a $1.5 billion Q4 quarter. So the numbers are great. And if it, we weren't going through what we're going through, uh, we would think that we're still on track. Now, I can tell you that the reporting, which we do on a weekly basis of the deal flow, both in private equity and venture, basically dissipated in the early uh, weeks of COVID. And we were reporting very, very few deals. That has picked up a little bit. So what I would say is I fully anticipate that Q2 will be extremely low in terms of transactions, but it still remains to be seen what Q3 and Q4 will bring. It sounds like we're just sort of getting our bearings on this whole new world under quarantine life. Can you cut a deal over a Zoom conference call? You can, and it's being done right now. This this full aspect of due diligence uh, and how do you make decisions in which companies you will invest in is very complex at a time of social distancing. Uh, I think a lot of people that don't spend a lot of time with their industry would assume that it's simply a transaction of capital from one entity to another, but it's much more than that. Uh, the relationship building, uh, if we talk about uh, private equity uh, or venture, let's start with venture. You, you don't invest only in a company because the company is in its inception. You're really investing in people. You're investing in the vision of a founder and the team that it's, he's, he or she has assembled around them and the vision for a company. And, and if you are an entrepreneur, and many of them are serial uh, that have done this before, wrapping up a deal on a Zoom call is feasible if you have those pre-existing relationships and you've built those relationships and you, you have a, um, the, the person who has the capital, the venture fund, and the entrepreneur, know, they know each other and they know what they've built in the past and then you're going on a new journey together. If you're a new entrepreneur and you've never raised money, that absence of being able to get to know each other definitely makes it more challenging. 
You also mentioned that there's a difference between strategies for VC versus PE. How, how are things different here for private equity? Private equity invests uh, in established assets. Like VC is looking at uh, a company that doesn't exist yet or is just the, the early onset of a vision and a plan, uh, while the private equity is coming in with so much more information. I will also say that both sides expect growth and, and to have an exit with some gains attached to it. That being said, private equity can be much more patient uh, in terms of capital and the, uh, the growth line. And we, we can talk about PE growth and just PE regular private equity, but uh, oftentimes you will see a lot of process-driven uh, mergers and acquisition to grow companies, which is very different uh, than the early stage in venture. So let's talk about how those strategies change post-COVID, because if a venture capitalist is looking for a startup and a private equity firm is looking for an established player, as both a startup and an established player come out of COVID-19, are they going to look substantially different than if we hadn't experienced this? I don't know if they'll look different. When I think about private equity, and I think about the types of companies that they're looking for. Uh, most of the time, they're looking for very successful companies that have had a you know significant growth and are now are having stable returns. And, you know, the the person who's founded the company has grown it to a certain point. They've you know had a successful career. They have their cottage. They have their house. They have everything that they need, and the company is doing great. But the company has so much more potential. And then you have a private equity firm come in, not only as capital, but also a strategic partner in saying to that person, let's take some chips off the table. Let's build this together. And most PE firms will tell you that they feel more comfortable investing in a firm where the CEO will stay and do the course with them for a few years and then really augment the, the, the potential and the productivity and, uh, and growth of that company. Uh, a lot of people think about that in retirement years or just pre-retirement. And uh, if you look at our, our data for even the first quarter, 85% of our PE deals were under $25 million. So you're really thinking mid-market. You're thinking, you know, Canada's industrial art land, like people that have built companies that are thinking, okay, is this time to retire? And post-COVID, given the uncertainty in the market, you may see some people choose to to go towards that kind of partnership to make sure that their retirement is even more comfortable. Oh, that's very interesting. The idea that we could see post-COVID-19, uh, I'm reluctant to say a flood, maybe you would though, a flood of companies that are established that end up getting sold either to private equity players or they're the founders who are looking to move on because I just want to take a break now. COVID may be like an element that brings that decision forward, but the uh, Business Development Bank, BDC and CBCA, over the last number of years, have done some roundtables trying to get a sense of people's intent when it comes to passing on companies. Mm. And we've seen a large jump in terms of the willingness of people to sell to someone outside of their family in the past decade. To what do you attribute that? I think less and less people stay in the family business and more people understand potentially, uh, given that private equity is, has had and continues to grow in Canada, I do think that if you are considering private equity, it's probably because you know someone 
in your in your business surroundings that has had a partnership that has been successful and you understand a little bit better that it is in in fact a partnership and not just dollars coming into your company. So how does COVID-19 change the valuations for companies in different industry verticals? Because I can imagine it would be different in, say, med tech versus fintech, logistics, clean tech, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a great question. Valuations is something uh, that was very top of mind pre-COVID. And everyone, I believe, understands that there's going to be a, an adjustment or re- realignment of value. And that is, is a really interesting thing because you've got the value from the entrepreneur, the founder, and then you have the value from the investor. And what we were seeing in the U.S. market was really high valuations and people putting a lot of capital towards these companies and people putting a question mark on whether that value was indeed there or if they were overpaying for certain companies. Um, that reality was not you know, fully uh, aligned with what we saw in Canada, although we, did, we were starting to see values going up and uh, a lot of dollars chasing few deals. So we should... Um, just because of the times that it's taking and the, uh, the, 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 the delays of due diligence, we may see people feeling like they have more time. Uh, when we think about the verticals themselves, uh, medtech, life sciences, uh, they have been extremely robust. Those are, are sectors where we were seeing some very strong performance prior to, uh, to the first quarter of this year. Last year, uh, life sciences, especially in Canada, has had a tremendous year. And uh, even in the last few days, I saw a number of exits of, uh, of companies that were um, in that categories of almost being unicorns or having the potential to be unicorns, uh, having some M&As and going to IPOs. So those valuations, I believe, will stay high. I think FinTech is another space where it's very stable and the, uh, the solutions that will be brought forward um, will, will continue to have investors think that that's a great place to put some dollars. Clean tech, um, it takes a really long time to, uh, to exit out of a clean tech deal, and it takes a lot of money. Um, that one, we may, we may see the valuations fluctuate a little bit more. And when it comes to logistics, which was another one of the, uh, the verticals that you mentioned, um, it's it, that's the one where I think a lot of people are linking COVID and the opportunities of COVID. The idea that you may want to be able to have uh, logistics facilities closer to various major centers so that we avoid the repeat of everything shutting down because China shut down. Yes, yes. And, and I, would, I would add to that the new reality post-COVID and how companies think about what they sell, who they sell to, and how they get their products into the hands of their customers? And will we see some new uh, solutions emerge out of, uh, of COVID-19 that will address those needs and, can, and enable these companies to continue to grow uh, by reaching their customers differently? Do the valuations change substantially when we're talking about B2B versus B2C? I can imagine we think a lot about the consumer being under pressure, under COVID, closing their wallets, circling the wagons, waiting for the all clear. But ultimately, if they're doing that, businesses aren't seeing cash flow. So how do we figure out what the valuations are in this environment for those two classes? Yeah, it's 
the sense that it, there would be a huge difference. The, the one, and you're right, they're, they're linked in some way, uh, either you're B2B or B2C. I actually think the B2C play, depending on what you're offering, you may see uh, some companies doing extremely well in that space. What do you have to offer to be able to do well in that space? The, um, I think the subscription base, like when you, when you like in this, if anyone were to take a poll today, Michael, of what people are doing in the evenings, people are asking for, you know, what show have I not watched and what else can people recommend? So when you think about reaching that consumer who's at home, um, and then I think about uh, going completely on the other end of the spectrum, if you think about the hospitality business that has been completely, you know, like the surprise of all of this and the, the, the idea that your business is shut down and you have no idea as to when you will be able to receive people as guests in your establishments. Uh, restaurants have begun to be very creative in Ontario, enabling the, the delivery of liquor with food. Um, we've seen people create some curated baskets and things of, of such. Will that continue? Will there be solutions where you will actually change the way people dine? Uh, will people, you know, show up at your place of business or will they expect to have that same experience uh, at home? So um, the valuation, I think, is not necessarily linked to the class B2B or B2C, but the types of offerings that these companies are putting forward and you would have to as either a vc or a private equity player have to do a remarkable amount of due diligence on any given company in a way that maybe you didn't have to think about prior to a global pandemic there is a survival of the fittest component to this there's definitely a lot of due diligence and i, I actually think that Founders, VC firms, private equity firms will be looking to have conversations with the uh, the entrepreneurs that they support in terms of the creativity and thinking outside the box and not necessarily trying to just gain some market share. Who's going to come to them with an idea where you think, yes, you know, that's an unmet need and let's uh, let's double down on that offering. Do you feel your members will be able to raise capital to support the ecosystem in this environment? There's capital out there and capital needs a place to go. The ability to fundraise, it'll be hard. What we're hearing is the potential retreat of some LPs. Uh, in the early onset of COVID, a lot of people uh, attributed the potential decrease in the LP base to the, to the losses in the public markets, which would have given them a higher exposure to our, uh, our asset class. That has rebounded. Like the, it's really interesting to watch the public market and see how well they're doing. Um, so it's, it's hard to tell what the, the next few months will bring. I can tell you this. If you're fundraising today, it's very difficult because it also is based on sitting down with people and pitching. And that uh, is usually more conducive in a face-to-face -face environment. What's the leading indicator that you will be looking for for evidence that after, you know, a record 539, 6.2 billion worth of deals in the heights of 2019 down to the depths of COVID-19, what do you look for for evidence that we're coming up on the other side of this? I think we're going to be looking at corporates and whether they stay the course. What do you mean by that? Their share price is uh, stabilized, and depending on which business they are, they uh, they play two roles. They are an investor and in, in some funds, 
uh, and they are often a source of exits. So uh, depending on where they position themselves, they, uh, they took a step back in the first few weeks of March and, and through April. Uh, but it's not to say that they won't have the, uh, the foresight to, to be very strategic and stay the course because the companies that they're following or investing in are often companies that may change the course of the, uh, the sector they're in or even their companies themselves. Um, I think family offices will be interesting to follow as well. A lot of them in the last five years had, uh, had kind of pivoted and created uh, more structured approaches to how they invested in venture capital. And again, there's a question mark on whether they will stay the course. And one thing that I think a lot about at CVCA and I speak to our members about is how do we ensure that the uh, institutional investors uh, writ large in Canada uh, see, see the benefit of writing large uh, checks at, uh, at the end of a growth journey, which often we've seen have come from the U.S. And I like to think that our, our growth uh, in Canada, we, we keep the equity local in the growth global and making sure that all the wealth that's created by these, uh, these exits are kept here in Canada and we can benefit from it as a society. A key factor in the success of our Canadian innovation sectors comes from our investors' ability to grow and scale with their investments. So what role does the CVCA play in working with government to ensure that the mechanisms are in place to ensure that Canadian-based venture capital and PE funds remain strong, as we've seen over the past few years? Well, we've been having a lot of these conversations, Michael. We've uh, we've been very... Um, We've been in close coordination and communication with the government. Uh, we, uh, we would, we've advocated in the early onset of COVID for a number of measures uh, that I'm glad to say the government agreed with us. So from convertible notes, and we went to BDC and asked them to, to consider bridging people that were close to their first close, uh, which would enable them to put dollars that they had fundraised to work, and they agreed with that. We asked for shred. Uh, credits to be expedited and delivered to those companies that do R&D. They agreed with that. And we, of course, asked for uh, wage subsidy uh, for the companies to, uh, to get through this, uh, this storm. And that, too, came our way now. So those were the, in the midst of crisis, what do we need to do uh, to keep all of the gains, all the companies we've built here continuing to grow um, and not have an, an exodus of a lot of these companies uh, leave Canada in terms of uh, at least their ownership by having other people come in. So that's the conversation we're having right now. What will we need in the next number of months to make sure that there is Canadian capital going into these growth rounds? Uh, the Harper government at the foresight of doing VCAP and the Trudeau government did the follow-on program, Vicky, which basically puts dollars on the table and says to the private uh, investors, Come and, come and add your money to ours and we will de-risk it by ensuring that we're there at first and we stay the course and come out last. And those have been extremely successful programs. And what we're saying to the government today is when you look at a year like 2019 at $6.2 and, and for the government, this is, uh, this is an investment. They make money. They make returns um, off, off of that program. 
let's stay the course, continue to be a partner with us, and let's look at the third program and what it could look like. So those conversations are ongoing, but the signals are extremely positive. And what role does the Canadian innovation sector play in driving investment in this country under these circumstances? What can the sector do? It needs to continue to innovate. I think the entire sector is one that takes risks and looks to, uh, to really change the course of business and bring new solutions to market. Canada, I, I often, you know, and I think this is, uh, is something that most people would agree with, uh, we're way too humble. We do so much. I just think we need to speak very loudly and proudly about the types of companies that we're building. We need to ask for large amounts of money. Uh, entrepreneurs need to step up and say, this is what I need. This is my vision. This is my vision for growth. And I think together we'll be able to build something very special. We're already on the road towards that success. We just have to keep on force and keep doing the work. Kim, thank you so much for your time and insight. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Subscribe today to the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast with Michael Hainsworth in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app.